and our bedroom, as we discovered after the fall of the wall and suspected at the time, the wall was absolutely riddled with bugs. And the upper centrale, as in Lives of Others, the movie Lives of Others, the Stasi agents were sitting literally on the other side of the wall from the end of our bed. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In this episode, we talk to Mark Brain again, and it's a wide-ranging interview about his career as a Reuters and BBC journalist, including details of his Stasi file, his time in the Soviet Union, Hungary and Poland, as well as the perils of editing analogue tape in a non-digital age. Among his interviewees, we talk about the Dalai Lama and Lech Walesa, as well as the ordinary people of the Warsaw Pact countries. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a written review in Apple Podcasts or share us on social media. By telling your friends, you can really help the podcast grow. And if you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are welcome too. Plus, you get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a monthly financial supporter and you bask in the warm glow of knowing you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. So back to today's episode. This is part two of three episodes with Mark. And as you will hear, we had a lot of fun recording this. We welcome Mark Brain back to our Cold War conversation. You said before we came on air that uh, you had your Stasi file there. I've got three. Um, when I when I when I looked at them for the first time, literally on November the ninth, nineteen eighty nineteen ninety nine. It was on the tenth anniversary, literally of the of the wall opening up, and I was at the Stasi place just off Alexanderplatz um, in East Berlin. Um, and they brought out all the files, and it was 2,700 pages of, of it of them, of them. And it was about a meter and a half tall. So I spent the entire day going through them um, and reading them all. And uh, it, was, it was it was a very powerful experience because I was just actually in the process. Also, my marriage was was ending; it had, had just ended, in fact, uh, to 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 Yuta, um at that point. So, and I stood on the top of it was it was a big reception at the at the um, new parliament, at the um, Reichstag, the Reichstag. Uh, there was a big reception in the Reichstag organized by the Freedom Forum uh, to mark the 10th anniversary of the wall opening up. And we, a very, a lot of senior politicians, I think the president was there, the uh, West, the West, the German president was there. Um, and we, I was looking out from the, from the roof of the Reichstag down over what had been then East Berlin and up to Schonhauser Allee remembering uh, our time together and knowing that the marriage had come to an end at that point. I just spent all day going through my Stasi files and reading of, you know, the very beginnings of our marriage in East Berlin and my activities as Martin, um, this well-known 
um, they, well, they thought that I might be an agent and realized that I wasn't. And they sort of slightly lost interest, actually. We perhaps need to get to that. But it was interesting looking, remembering how, our, how the marriage started and ended. It had a kind of arc because Yuta and I married in March 1977 uh, in, the, in, in this big church in the south of West Germany. But then we had our first two years in, nearly uh, in, the, in, in the Reuter flat in East Berlin, and our bedroom, as we discovered after the fall of the wall and suspected at the time, uh, was the wall was absolutely riddled with bugs. And the upper centrale, as in Lives of Others, the movie Lives of Others, yeah, the Stasi agents were sitting literally on the other side of the wall from the end of our bed. So the wall was, I don't know, perhaps, you know, sort of 10 centimeters, 15 centimeters thick. So there was our marital bed for two years on one side of the wall. And the other side of the wall was a whole array of Stasi listening gear and tape recorders and all the rest of it. So wow. um, perhaps that's one of the reasons that uh, our marriage had a bit of a rocky time later on. Um, genuinely, actually. That must have been really strange reading that file and, and hearing this sort of like third party's view of your life and your relationship as well in, in, in that moment in time for you. It was a slightly unreal experience, but the extraordinary thing was that the agents, the bureaucrats, really, from the Stasi, who were putting the files together and collecting the reports and piling up this vast amount of information about you know, their own citizens and those of us who were living among them and might be might might be deemed agents or anti-socialist elements or you know da- danger a, a source of dangerous undermining of the state the extraordinary thing is the I- extent to which it was very ordinary and you you know going through my files and reading their conclusions that they came to me it was a bit like reading a sort of you know annual report at the bbc uh <laughs> giving me marks at the end of the year and there's I've, there's one page which i just smile enormously they were looking at my reports for Reuters and they were marking them. Uh, are they uh, factually neutral, anti-socialist or positive? Uh, I think there were four grades um, uh, on the sort of anti-socialist scale. And some of my reports were sort of neutral, but most of them had a tick anti- anti-socialist. So I was being sort of, I was being evaluated. Um, I didn't get a bonus, by the way. At the end of the year, um, uh, and and some of the agents who were writing about me were quite insightful, and one of them wrote how uh, Martin erhardet mit dem Schicksal, uh, which uh, tra- roughly translated would mean he struggles with his fate, and I was very intense, you know, as a young man. Um, I remain fairly intense as an old man. But they clocked my psychology, really. And they clocked, I think, that, you know, Yuta was probably having a slightly entertaining time getting used to being married to me. Um, But they never tried anything on. And um, they clocked a huge amount of boring detail about comings and goings and who I met and who I was having dinner with. And most of it is pretty belunglos, pretty meaningless stuff. Uh, but some of it was 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 curious about. I would say was curious about me and what made me tick. They were trying to work out what basically was I MI six. Um, and once they realised that no, don't think so. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't, by the way, I genuinely wasn't. And I, not just, I'm not just saying that. No, I know because I I know that Reuters was a um, potentially fertile ground for MI6. Yes, I don't I don't know if you've ever, ever if anybody's fessed up on any one of your broadcasts uh, having actually done done both you know played both sides. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to Mark, but sadly not. <laughs> but I was approached by the um, by MI6 in Vienna after I'd got a particularly interesting interview in the Czech, in the Czechoslovakia nearly said Czech Republic of course that was wasn't that at the time but um the, the cousin of my of my headmaster at school you know very old boy said sort of old oh boy you know really interested in your interview and uh, you could be jolly useful to us you know I, no compromise no no expectations but we'd like to give it some thought you know perhaps you could sort of you know help us a bit you know, in your travels around the around Czechoslovakia and I took about two milliseconds to say, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> Not the sort of thing I'm going to do. That was the only time that uh, anybody really tried it on. But it was the classic approach from, you know, somebody from the same not the same school, but that same background. Absolutely, and, absolutely yeah. Yeah. You know. Bruce Lockhart. Big big family of English British spies. Anyway, I've got these um I've got these three because I I had these vast files that I went through. And I did it mm. from our own correspondent for the BBC, which is actually still on the BBC website. Oh, um, I'll have to find that. Yeah, it, it was it was quite fun because I quote in there from um, I broadcast it in November uh, nineteen ninety nine. It was one of the last pieces I did uh, of broadcasting for the BBC. Um, but um, the, I then asked to have the whole lot photocopied and and sent on, which they did for a nominal fee. They were so efficient; they were really kind. And I've got these three ring binders. Full and I've just opened one. It's fallen open here on page. Uh, <laughs> I oh, blimey! I was just just reminding myself, Ian. And here, there's a there's a list of things I was doing in Dresden by the minute. Then I was visiting Dresden and the art exhibition in Dresden, and going to the library where a friend of mine, a choir friend of mine, was working in the in the Dresden library, and where I was, what I was wearing, um, and they didn't really coordinate terribly well. So the Stasi in Dresden were reporting back to the to, to sort of Stasi Central. And there were all kinds of things. They hadn't a clue about me at all. They hadn't actually read up on me beforehand. Here's a photograph of me taken out of a briefcase. And I'm looking very young. I'm just, as, I, as I'm t- talking to you, there's, there's Jutta and uh, I need to send you a copy here. <laughs> oh, I've got to see a copy of that. I've got to see that, a copy. Okay, that make, sounds sensational. I'll make a note and you can put it on the website. <laughs> so, they, wow. so they were sort of following us around, you know, with, with cameras in, in briefcases so we wouldn't notice. This is James Bond's stuff. Mark. Oh, it is, yeah. yeah. Here we are. Every page has got a picture. So, yeah, you know, I look very young. I've got a bit more hair than I have now. But but this is the, the weirdness about the Stasi is the – banality that they recorded oh, but yeah. but the thing is is i'm i was speaking to um a uh, history professor in australia and she's saying that the whole of the stasi archive is a almost fascinating fascinating um anthropological study yes of people really yep. if, yep. if you a- actually analyze it i know you know some of the some of the data there is not necessarily going to be you know, hugely accurate, but it's a study of a country, really. Well, the funny thing is, Ian, it is accurate. You know, every every observation is accurate. 
what I was doing, who I was meeting, the kind of things that we were discussing. What is inaccurate is the interpretation that they put on it. They're right. constantly looking for proof that I'm trying to undermine the socialist state order and all that kind of stuff. But the pure observation is um, it, it's an it's an anthropological study. Uh, you know, mm. in one particularly my two my two years with 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 Reuters, there's rather less. Let me just get there. Just looking through through binder binder one at the moment. Let me just remind myself of binder three. Um, it is maybe um, they give a review of your singing in Binder One. No, they didn't. Uh, they should have because I was. <laughs> it was quite good. But the interesting thing is that I don't think there were any anybody reporting on us from the choir because they didn't seem to have any inside information from the choir, and um, they were so didn't have inside information from the choir because they mm. they named the wrong choir. But also, yeah, they, the, the only reference to the choir that I came is somebody in the choir told the Stasi that. Uh, Mrs. Brain seems to be pregnant. So this was when, our, when she was pregnant, when uh, right. Rita was pregnant with our first child. What was the most surprising thing you found in that file? Um, I think the most surprising thing I found was how little uh, I was spied on by friends. Um, I was in the – maybe it was because it was in the church. Maybe it was because it was in the church – but then there were people who were spying furiously in the church. Um, maybe it was because of the choir. The, the people who sang in the choir were people of quite considerable integrity, I would say. Uh, you know, the Hildebrands who ran it, and Jörg Hildebrandt and, and Herbert Hildebrandt, very close as brothers, and Regina Hildebrandt, who then goes on you know, in United Germany to be mm. a major figure in the SPD and bring in integrity that made her beloved of all Germans, interestingly. And we had that quality of... of cleanliness if you like relational cleanliness and clarity um and kindness there was a lot of good in that choir mm. um, so i think i think that was sort of what i was surprised about i do actually interestingly need to um, read all of this again um, there's just vast pages to remind myself of um some of the detail because i haven't read this now for um where are we? Nineteen yeah, nineteen ninety nine. So you know, twenty years. I haven't opened these files for twenty years. Wow! I'm just, I'm just leafing through them as we speak. It's unusual for you not to find somebody um, effectively spying on you, who you know you considered a friend from from the people that I've spoken to in 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 other interviews. So generally, the people who were spying on you were sort of like a little bit removed from your main circle of friends, by the sounds of it. That's right. I had um, journalistic um, contacts. There was one from the um, peasants' newspaper, the Bauernzeitung, which was uh, the organ, the party organ of one of these nominal, um, nominally independent, uh, non-communist parties in, in in East Germany. There were four of yeah. them, I think. They sort of liberal. They were the Liberal Democrats and the Bauernpartei. And I met this chap at the, at the party conference of the of the of the peasants' party, and uh, he was obviously reasonably well connected. He'd probably been put on me, sort of set on me by the Stasi. But anyway, we became mm. sort of friends and contacts. And I visited him in his dacha outside East Berlin, and he visited me uh, later. And we'd have lunch every now and again. He didn't really give me any newsworthy information, but you never know what you're going to pick up. And when I was with the BBC in West Berlin, living in Johannesburg Ali, 
he came to visit once uh interestingly visiting west berlin as a you know as a member of the east german establishment and i was pretty certain that he was reporting back to the stasi what i didn't realize is the detail with which he was reporting back to the stasi um and he went back and i discovered in my file a uh, a sketched plan of uh, our house in west berlin so he actually uh, drew a, a drew a sort of floor plan of the house yeah. for his for his offices in uh, in east berlin in the stasi that was pretty detailed the other spy i had i have to smile was vitislav havlicek from rudy pravo rudy pravo the czech czechoslovakian newspaper wasn't it yeah Yeah. and and vitislav was their east berlin you know their well their gdr correspondent in the capital of the gdr and we used to hang out together quite a bit and i i loved him he was a complete rogue i'm sure he was spying for for the kgb and the cia and mi6 as well (laughs) but he he would have him around for dinner and he was clearly you know i find a lot of stuff in the in the files about things that we said at dinner and none of it was of any significance whatsoever so he would enjoy the hospitality and get merrily drunk and go back and earn his keep with the with his stasi officers and report meaningless rubbish to them you know which didn't help the at all build the case against me as an anti socialist underminer of the state or anything but it kept him quite nicely in his in beer i think yeah Whereas, would you have talked to? Did he not report on some of the stuff that you talked about then? Well, we, you know, the stuff we talked about was was what was going on in the in the in in East Germany and the and and the politics and East West and it, most of what we talked about was relatively well known, relatively common mm. knowledge, and it was in the newspapers. So there wasn't very much sort of privileged information knocking about in East Germany at all. You just couldn't get at it. One of the one of the little things that I really found it really interesting in was uh, um, just how um, what a good journalist the Stasi thought I was, which was very flattering. I didn't think it myself at the time. That's one of the reasons I became a psychotherapist to try and sort that stuff out. But I, I'm characterised uh, in a number of places in my Stasi files, alongside being anti-socialist and an underminer of the state and all this sort of gumph they had to put in there. Uh, he's a very diligent journalist. He's an extremely um, uh, sought-after source for Western correspondents and journalists visiting East Berlin. Every English-language correspondent journalist who comes to East Berlin uh, seeks out, seeks out um, Martin. And um, fi- visiting journalists find his analysis of GDR event, GDR um, uh, goings on. You know, highly reliable. He's considered to be extremely well connected. All sorts of wonderful stuff. You know, better than anything I ever got from the BBC, quite honestly. But you're, but you're right. It sounds like a performance review. It was a performance <laughs> review, but I never got the payoff. <laughs> God. Oh, yeah, share that with the BBC. You could have got a promotion. Now, before we get to Romania, I just want to go back to the Soviet Union, which I know is sort of almost the start of your story in Eastern Europe, because I'm, I'm still intrigued by how you managed to get so close to Andrei Sakharov. Oh, well, if you worked as a Western journalist, an English language journalist in Moscow in 1974-1975, you were close to Andrei Sakharov. He was a kind of news, a, a kind of one. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War 
um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. One man, well, one man and one woman, because his wife, Yelena Bonner, was tremendously significant in his life. He was a man of just towering integrity and courage. And he was the uh, reference point for the Refuseniks, the Jewish dissidents who basically wanted out, mm-hmm. and for the dissidents in the aftermath of the Brezhnev trials in the late 60s, where, uh, you know, who were agitating from within for against against the system so there were these two strands of 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 opposition to the to, to communist the, the communist ideology and and rule and sakharov embraced both i mean obviously a russian not a not not from jewish descent himself but he really cared about uh, about the right thing being done and he obviously had the had the integrity and courage to break away from the Soviet military program when he realized that it was being used to rather, uh, un, you know, ends that he couldn't sign up to. So he, in, in the mid seventies, before he got sent off to exile in Gorky, he was the go-to person. So when you arrived with Reuters as a correspondent, as a, as a junior correspondent, it was a, you know, train, a training post in May, 1974, one of the first things that uh, Bob Evans did as the Reuter, well, Vincent Buist was the Reuter bureau chief at the time, but Bob was number two. And I think it was Bob who took me to meet Sakharov. And it was a kind of rite of passage that when you arrived as a English language journalist, Western journalist in Moscow, you were taken to meet Sakharov. It was just part, part of the course. And then I used to make a point, we all did in our different ways of, of, of visiting, visiting him pretty regularly on his flat on the, on the garden ring. And, uh, drinking tea in his kitchen. I have a photograph of uh, when I'm particularly proud of taking notes as he's sort of giving a press conference in effect to a bunch of us Western journalists from, from, the, uh, from Scandinavia and from America and from England. And uh, he got quite fond of us as well uh, because it was a kind of personal relationship. It wasn't just passing on information. That was why when I moved to East Berlin in from Moscow at the end, so after a year in, 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 in London through 1976 and started up in East Berlin in 1977, I'd expected there to be a kind of dissident network, but it just didn't work like that. So Stefan Heim, who I'd hoped would be my go-to source, um, wasn't, and he wasn't connected mm-hmm. into the network of uh, dissident activity because the huge difference between Russia, between the Soviet Union and East Germany was that there was no West Soviet Union. So the ger- the whole German dissident resistance to the state was so part of West German identity and people watching West German television identifying with West German values, with, yeah. you know, with collective German values. But Russia, the Soviet Union, was Russian. And the Russians, Russian exiles were in parts of New York. It was a totally different – or Israel. It was a totally different mindset. So the Russian dissidents, like Sakharov, 
were not trying to leave, apart from the, the Jewish refusics were, mm. but dissidents like Sakharov were really wanted to bring about reform, which of course they did in the end, yeah. with, in the end of the 1980s. Yeah. And wh- why did the Soviets not stop him? I, I know he was exiled to Gorky in the end, but obviously there was a considerable period where he was able to freely speak with Western journalists. That is the paradox of uh, of Russia. My goodness me. Didn't somebody once say something about a riddle wrapped in an enigma and all the rest of it? It was Churchill, Churchill. I think. Yes, exactly. yeah. yes it was. <laughs> uh, that's the craziness of Russia. I mean, I, Russia is a land where everything is forbidden and everything is possible. Um, and that way, in Soviet times, it was the same. I went back, my wife and I went back to Russia a couple of years ago for the first time after many years and absolutely loved it. It's just changed. It's, I just love Russia. It's it's now, despite Putin and all the rest of it, the politics, mm. the Russians are now able to be Russian in the best sense. And they've picked up the old traditions and they've sort of rather embarrassed about sort of the small matter of 70 years of communism. They're so much more proud of their Tsarist heritage and their culinary traditions and their and their history and it's just a pleasure to visit russia these days and the funny thing is under the surface that was there during soviet times too of course it was yeah and i think the fact that the russia the soviet system let sakharov do an honorable thing ah it probably was in some way you know there was decency there it wasn't just awfulness although god knows there was enough of that and it wasn't it wasn't stalin's russia in Moscow, I mean, um, Philby and Burgess would have still been around then, wouldn't they? Or not? Uh, we had no idea. There was no contact with that that I knew of with Philby and Burgess and people. None whatsoever. We lived in a bit of a bub- bubble, Western mm. journalists, and we self-referenced across the piece with American journalists and a few German journalists I was close to, and the German embassy and the American embassy. Um, the British Embassy, the Canadians, and we lived in a kind of journalistic diplomatic echo chamber where we were knocking stories around. And um, I, you've probably talked to I know talked to Reuter correspondents, talking to Peter Miller and others who were in Moscow as well. I'm sure they've told you the story of the puppet theatre just over the road from Sad Sam, Sadovia Samatyochne on the Garden Ring. The dissidents or the people who had a grievance, a gripe against the state would uh, ring us in the Reuter Bureau and w- arrange to meet in front of the puppet theatre, Kukulny Theatre, with its, uh, with its every quarter of an hour, it blasted out this song right across the metallic, metallic chimes every quarter of an hour over the Reuter Bureau on the other side of the, of the, of the garden ring, sort of multi-lane highway mm. around the edge of the centre of Moscow. And we would go out and meet these guys and they'd have these huge long Zayevlinia, these great big tracts of, of, of fulmination against the state or personal grievances about how they'd been wronged by the state or by this ministry or that ministry. And we'd sort of patiently take them, take them in and file them and never report them. But there was this sort of this 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 curious dance that we did um in the diplomatic echo chamber, the news news reporting echo chamber following TAS and following Pravda and all the rest of it. But then this sort of on the edges of it, we had these connections into ordinary Russia, some of which was usable, but an awful lot of it was just um, just as over the centuries, people have come up from the provinces to complain to the Tsar. They carried on doing it through Soviet times, but nobody was listening. And to be honest, yeah. we weren't either. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, no, I appreciate um, 
that. That was uh, interesting again. Um, so on to Romania. So from Berlin, you end up being, uh, or you you become BBC Central European correspondent based in Vienna. That's right, covering. Well, it's a world service correspondent, radio correspondent, because radio and television weren't integrated in those days. And obviously, there were no social media or anything like that. So it was a fairly, by today's standards, a fairly simple task of just producing radio reports and features and from our own correspondence, which I used to do in vast numbers. So I was based in Vienna, but traveling a lot to Prague, to Bratislava. In the first year of 1981, moving to Vienna, I spent a lot of time in Poland. Solidarity Poland. So I stood in for Tim Sebastian quite a lot um, as BBC Radio in Warsaw and covered the uh, Eighth Party Congress of the Polish United Workers Party at the height of the Solidarity era, but um, didn't get back after martial law. Right. So I was covering a lot of Poland during the summer of uh, the summer and the autumn of 1981. But and did you? Yeah. Sorry. Did you? interview many of the uh, solidarity leaders or any of them yeah i interviewed lech Wałęsa. um I, I think i remember interviewing Wałęsa. maybe that's a kind of one of these reconstructed memories but i certainly <laughs> went up to to gdansk to report the solidarity congress uh in at one point in 1980 towards the end of 1981 before martial law was declared but it was a very exciting time it was it had the buzz of it of of of, of rather like um uh, i imagine Prague must have been in 1968. My my moment of triumph. I just have to share this with you. Radio. We, we were working on tape, of course, in those days, not digital. So all of the editing and interviews had to be done on a ewer, what was called a ewer, with reel-to-reel tape, or or transferred, recorded on a Sony Walkman on a cassette, but then transferred onto reel-to-reel and edited on a Revox on a big machine with razor razor blades and china mm. graphs and and so on. Wow. And I went out and did a whole set of Vox Pops um, talking to the people on the streets of Warsaw. And it was early days in radio, and I hadn't yet worked out how to edit tape quite as elegantly as I learned to do later. And I recorded a whole bunch of interviews with an interpreter um, doing the English and then the Polish. But my Polish, I could understand a certain amount of Polish on the basis of my Russian, but obviously I needed an interpreter and I needed that then to be that would be the voice that was broadcast for the for the BBC radio package. And I took all this back to the office in the centre of Warsaw and transferred it all to tape and started editing it through. I might have even recorded it on a U, I come to think of it. So it was the original tape. And I realised that if rather than cutting out the ums and the ers, we used to call it de-umming, and rather than cutting out just one um, sticking it together, checking whether I'd done it right – I could do a kind of sequential series of ums where I could mark the tape up because I was getting quite good at knowing exactly on the tape where to cut. So I could do a series of of marks on the tape so that I could edit out a whole bunch of ums in one go and put them on the floor, just let them fall to the floor in little tiny snippets and then join up the rest of the coherent interview. Guess what? I think I know where this might be going. I got one out. (laughs) So I... (laughs) I got one out. I ended up with all of the interview on the floor and one oh. endless series of ums. I, I wish I kept it. Oh, it dear. I'm great- with you there. I mean, editing oh, in digital is obviously a lot easier. And, you know, you can see the sound wave for an um in digital. Yeah. 
um, a lot of the time. So you can identify and you can do a, you know, almost like a find and find and replace. Yeah. Um, but if you do that, it's it can be deadly because it's you know it's it's still not precise. Well, certainly I can't get it precise in digital. So I genuinely feel for you there. Anyway, I learned. I got very, very good, Ian, actually, at uh, editing tape. And when I was in in China, I had a, an interview, uh, uh, an interpreter, uh, office, uh, a young lad in the office who was lovely chap, Xiao Ding, little Ding, we called him, and he would be my voice. So he was the voice of virtually everybody in China I ever, ever interviewed because he was the English voice on the <laughs> on, on in situ because my Mandarin wasn't good enough to understand what people were saying. So I'd record his voice, but he used to say these instead of this. Uh, so I went through, I used to go through interviews being a perfectionist, and I used to shorten the E in these to turn it into this. And so you, it's actually on my, on my, on my, uh, my blog, uh, cyclotherapist.com. Uh, I've got some of these originals of, of Xiao Ding and his, and his pieces unmixed, the original features before they were mixed for the Today program. And you wow. can hear the 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 the, the elegance ele- the elegance of the editing. And oh yes, I've got to tell you one more thing. I interviewed um, the Dalai Lama in Brussels in a hotel room uh, right at the end of the Cold War, and he was the most wonderful man. I mean, it was the most extraordinary interview I've ever done. I came out there on cloud nine. I mean, he was just such a lovely man. But my goodness me, does he um he is the biggest ummer on the planet. He still is, and he giggles, the laughing monk. And I had a three and a half minute interview on PM on Radio Four PM, and I swear not, I kid you not, I had a hundred and twenty edits in three wow. and a half minutes. I was wow, I was proud. Of that. I mean, I I spend quite a bit of time getting rid of my ums. To be honest, I, I'm not sure I'm up at the same level as the Dalai Lama. <laughs> I would expect him to be a lovely man as well. He just comes across as as that. So. Uh... He's up there with Sakharov, or Sakharov's up there with him. You know, there the, were the one or two extraordinary men I met in my travels and by whom I felt touched. I never met Mandela because I never covered Africa, but certainly the Dalai Lama and Sakharov were two very, hugely powerful influences just on me, just the encounters that I had with them. Yeah. They well, that, that's, that's, that's not a bad two to have an encounter with, I would say. So... I, I keep trying to drag us back to Romania, but I get distracted. Um, <laughs> okay, so we... I was covering. Yeah, you were asking about Romania. Well, I, so from Vienna, I was covering, responsible for radio coverage for BBC Radio uh, for Czechoslovakia, Poland as a backstop, um, Hungary, which I loved. And I spent a lot of time studying Hungarian. I love the Hungarian language. Bonkers, bonkers though it is, completely upside down. Well, that's supposed to be one of the most – I mean, I, I know it's sort of from the Finnic Ugric branch of languages or something. That's right, yeah. And they famously said when the, they were emigrating from um, from Mongolia, where they originally came from, there was a sign uh, which said, uh, Finns this way, Hungarians this way. And depending on whether you're Finnish or Hungarian, <laughs> they say that those who could read – went to Hungary or went to Finland went the other way. Anyway, um, so I I covered Hungary and used to use every excuse to nip down to Budapest, which was the happiest barracks in the block, as I used to call it. And I was uh, credited in Bulgaria, visited Bulgaria a few times. Romania, I went to – and Yugoslavia. I covered Yugoslavia, so I 
spent a lot of time in Yugoslavia uh, post Tito because Tito had died a year before I got there. Right. And I went down to Kosovo right at the beginning of my time in uh, in Central Europe. And I was covered Albania as well. Though I never I never got into Albania at that time. I did visit Albania later as European regional editor for the language services in the nineties. God, I can't think there's, there's not many countries in the Eastern Bloc. You've certainly European Eastern Bloc. You you've not covered at some point then. I don't think there are any. I'm trying to. Yeah, I can't think of one now. No, now no, that you said Albania. <laughs> No, I, co- I co- reported from Moldova, Moldavia, you know, in the Soviet Union. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've never been to, I've never reported from Belarus. I've been to Minsk, but never reported from Belarus. But yeah. no, I was, I was, I, that was my, that was my patch. So I just traveled all over the place. And the curious thing about those days, Ian, was that there wasn't really much of a story. You sort of made your own story. You made your own wind, um, as it were. You created your own story. Because nobody in the in the West was terribly interested in the minutiae of what's going on in Eastern Europe. They understood people in the West looked at Eastern Europe and thought, well, Prague, Warsaw, Romania, Russia, it's all the same thing. It's just the Eastern Yeah. Europe. They had no idea about these different countries. And the American presidents didn't understand the difference between Slovakia and Slovenia, famously. So I would, what I would do is I'd just say, hey, it's time to go and visit Hungary or it's time to visit Yugoslavia. And I would head off and I'd go do some interviews and get some good features and put, I, I used to do a lot of radio features, just ordinary life, because there wasn't really much happening on the big political front, apart from the big Cold War stories. But once you'd done that, what else were you going to do? You know, wasn't a lot to sort of to interview or to talk. So I used to try and report back for the Today program or for the various um, English language stuff on the World Service, just about ordinary life. What it's like to be an ordinary Czech, uh, tennis in Czechoslovakia or gypsies in Slovakia or uh, Hungary bathhouses in, in, in Budapest. And it got a certain traction. Um, most of my ordinary reporting was done really on the basis of news agency coverage uh, coming out from the various national news agencies which came in on a collected feed with APA, APA, Austrian Press Agency. I used to come in on a ticker in mm. uh, in Vienna. So a lot of my reporting was based just on what the news agencies of the various countries were reporting. And based on my traveling around, I had a feel for how those stories really resonated and how they needed to be reported. So Romania, you asked about Romania. Yes, because yes. <laughs> uh, you, you you had some difficulties there. I had a little local difficulty in Romania. Yes, um, um, I just actually just before I talk about my little local <laughs> difficulty in Romania, <laughs> I was just reading my Stasi file and reminding myself that the Stasi got it into their head from some chance remark from a British diplomat that I somehow had fallen out with Reuters and joined the BBC because I had left Reuters in some kind of disgrace for having been involved in some kind of scam. And the Stasi got their hands on this and they kept repeating it through my files. It was completely untrue. I chose to go to to BBC from Reuters because I wanted to do radio rather than news agency. But these these agencies, you know, these these um, intelligence agencies or lack of intelligence agencies, agencies would get their eye. They, they would sort of come across an idea and repeat it to themselves and persuade themselves that it was true just like a lot of journalists used to do in our coverage of the stories we were covering so you know one journalist feeding on another anyway back to romania right uh i get to vienna in 
April 1981. And uh, I managed to get to Romania three times before the autumn of 1981, despite all that traveling to Poland. And my last visit to Romania in 1980, no, 1982, early 1982, I think it was, uh, Bill Mitchell from the Detroit Free Press at the time and I drove all the way from Vienna to Bucharest through Hungary, which was the most extraordinary drive. And it took us right past a town called Skonicest, which was Ceausescu's birthplace. Mm -hmm. So in the Ceausescu era, and it is pronounced Ceausescu, by the way, not Ceausescu, as many people incorrectly That's write. where I've been going wrong. That's why I get <laughs> one-star reviews on my pronunciation. <laughs> Don't you dare cut this out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I won't. I won't. Ceausescu, S with a, with a, with a, with a little Ceausescu. 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 Yeah, Ceausescu. 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 Well done. You got it. I think he's got it. Right. As Doolittle would say. I'll um, keep practicing. <laughs> keep practicing. <laughs> For my next episode with. on Romania. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Anyway, so Scony Chest, which is written at the end with S-T-I. So it's not Scony Chesty because T-I in Romania is a soft T. I'm, I'm learning so much. Well, there you go. Today. I'm a bit of a, langu- a linguistic nerd. Uh, so Bill and I called in on Scony Chest and uh, we drove into Scony Chest in my VW Green Passat, and uh, knowing that it was Ceausescu's birthplace, and it was sort of a rather better class Romanian small town, which is not saying a lot, but there was food in the shops, and and it sort of was bright, brightly coloured. It was definitely a nicer place than most dreadful, godforsaken Romanian villages at the time, because it was at the height of the campaign that Ceausescu was running to erase all the villages and put people in high-rises and literally bulldoze the villages and turn it into agricultural land. So it's yeah, they were Ches- trying to create those agro factories weren't they that's right completely bonkers um but scornichest was you know pretty dreadful place but not quite so dreadful as all the rest of romania within about two milliseconds of us arriving we were being followed by um securitati types um in in what i called a car with dark glasses it was a car it was one of those dreadful dachas the the romanian version of the renault um um and it was Renault, not Renault 5, the Renault, I can't remember which Renault it was. But anyway, it was the Romanian version because the, the Renault had a joint production agreement like Fiat had with Russia, with the Soviet Union for the Jubilee. Anyway, this, this, this Romanian car with every, all of the wing, windows dark, including the main front screen, uh, turned up near us. And before we could really get much done or anything recorded, we got marched off and interviewed and told that we were breaching everything, you know, under the sun. And they let us go with a sharp warning. Um, and we drove on to Bucharest, which was grim. Oh, my God, was Bucharest grim in those days. Couldn't believe it. And when I went back there for the revolution in December 1989, it was just as grim, if not worse. Uh, so I met a few people and did a few interviews, and we went drove back to Vienna. And I was declared persona non grata, not publicly, but I was not allowed uh, back into Romania uh, until the fall of Ceausescu, which we will get to. And um, shortly after that, I was put forward by the BBC to be the BBC's Moscow correspondent to take over from John Osman, I think it was, 
and the Russians refused. They just strung it out. So I never got to Russia as as, as Moscow correspondent. Life would have been very different. I would have, might have turned into Bridget Kendall or someone very famous instead of being me. Uh, so that's why I went to China. You're great being you. I'm I'm <laughs> so enjoying this conversation. <laughs> Anyway, so I couldn't get back to Romania, but I, I carried on slandering Ceausescu and, you know, undermining the socialist state order and so on merrily for the next uh, for the next three years, for the rest of my time in Vienna until 1984 when I went to China as a BBC radio uh, correspondent. Right. And tell me about China, because, I mean, that must have been quite a different posting because you would have got very used to Europe and the way of working there. Was China hugely different? I completely fell in love with China when I got there. It was the most extraordinary experience. I took over for, from Stephen Jessel, who went on to be the BBC's Paris correspondent. Boy, couldn't he wait to get out. Stephen loathed China with a visceral loathing. It was just, <laughs> I mean, you could have cut his loathing, loathing with a knife. And he was foul about China in all his reporting, <laughs> I'm afraid. Uh, but Philip Short had been the first BBC correspondent in in China uh, before uh, before Peter, uh, before um, uh, Stephen Jessel, and Philip wrote a wonderful book about uh, China and Russia because he was Moscow correspondent for the BBC when I was there for Reuters, so I knew Philip very well. And he wrote The Dragon and the Bear, extremely good book about the two communist systems, um, captured it very well. So I'd read that before I went. But when I got to Beijing or Peking, as we called it in those days, still. Um, I the, the the quality of the food, basically, I could not believe the quality of the cooking in China, and the sense of tradition that was still alive. In they were there was a proud tradition, um, and there was a quality, despite the awfulness of the system, which was nothing like as awful as the Russian system. Um, it felt at the time there was a kind of quality and a pride which uh, I felt the Soviet system was breaking in the Russians, Russian men with their drinking, the kind of breakdown of basic order and the functioning of the state in Russia. Nobody cared in Russia or in the Soviet Union. And we didn't talk about Russia in those days. We talked about the Soviet Union. And I used to correct people that, no, it's the Soviet Union, not mm -hmm. Russia. But people just didn't care. They had their private lives, but they simply didn't care about the state structure or the public spaces. They rubbish they threw rubbish around you know there was no maintenance it was very very run down the soviet union was incredibly run down china wasn't china was totally different uh, the chinese looked after things it was still very basic you couldn't get much in the shops it was sort of felt very communist or very socialist should we say but uh, it was totally totally different in that sense i i just loved it but the chinese are very different from the Russians. The Russians are like us. I mean, they're Eastern versions of Europeans. They're very, very European. I think they're much more European than Asian. Uh, but the Chinese, obviously, rather obviously, are rather Asian. So mm. the quality of contact to the Chinese was very different from the quality of contact to the Russians. And the single most important difference, I'd say, Ian, is that the Russians are individuals. They are not a collective. I mean, they when they fight wars, they are a collective. But in day-to-day -day life, yeah, look at Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. There's a tr proud tradition of being individual and being drunk and kicking back against whoever, authority. Uh, the Chinese uh, are 
a collective and they experience themselves psychologically as part of a collective. They're ants, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but they experience themselves as part of a much bigger whole. And the Russians don't. I, perhaps a little bit more these days than they used to. Uh, but so talking to Chinese was totally different from talking to the Russians. The Russians talked to Sakharov or Sharansky or whoever, um, Alyosha, my very drunken uh, Russian friend, closest friend who died, of course, of drink uh, before he reached 50, um, talked to them. And it was you could talk, talk, you could joke, you could talk about ordinary life, you could share the same sense of humor and perspective on life. But the Chinese, I talked to a young journalist from China Daily, which was just developing then as a rather, rather good English language newspaper in China and in, in Beijing in Peking. And he said to me, Mark, can you explain to me w- what an individual is? <laughs> we literally asked the question, wow. can you explain what it means to be an individual? Because we- I feel myself as part of the done way, the collective, the family, the bigger family. So it was, it was, it was totally different. And um, mm. I, I loved China. I was very glad to leave after three years, but I, China was just endlessly fascinating. And of course it was all opening up 84 to 87. It was before Tiananmen Square. And I remember thinking, because uh, I was there when the agreement, the Hong Kong agreement was signed in late 1984, when Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping signed the handover agreement, mm. uh, which came into force in 1997. And there was a lot of fear and loathing saying, you know, the Chinese are going to take over Hong Kong and it'll ruin Hong Kong. I mean, it's now a little bit complicated. But at the time, I remember thinking, no, it's going to be the other way around. Not in democratic terms, but in economic terms and social social terms. Uh, Hong Kong will take over China. And mm. I think I've been proved right. You know, China is yeah. extraordinary going back there now and how modern it is. Yeah. I need to let you get a question in edgeways. Edgeway. No, no. Well, what I tend to do is I let I do tend to let my guests talk rather than because people want to hear you rather than me. <laughs> um, so you're, you're there for the um, Gorbachev visit. Uh, yes, I was. So I was Beijing... Peking correspondent for BBC Radio from October 1984 through to November 1987, when I came back to to to, to uh, London, moved back to London, put the kids in school in England, took about an eighty percent cut in real income as one did in those days, um, and uh, became BBC World Service diplomatic correspondent based at Bush House. Um, so. For those three years that I was in Beijing, I covered really the economics. Uh, Wham came and played in Beijing, Peking, and caused a bit of a brouhaha. There was a certain amount of political protest in Shanghai, kind of split in the Communist Party, which you were feeling the reformers were in the ascendant when I was there. And Deng Xiaoping was was giving his backing to the reformers, the cautious reformers. Mm. Um, so it was a it was a it was a fairly heady time, not a political op- massive political opening up, but curiosity and interest in the outside world and culture. And when I needed a tonic, I used to go to a particular park in Beijing and Peking, uh, to the English Corner, where students Chinese students of English would congregate of a Sunday morning and talk in English to each other and have earnest conversations, a bit like Hyde Park Corner, not yeah. about politics but about Dickens and the West and, and, and life. And so I used to go down there and I, whenever I was down, I just used to go to English corner and just 
oh, recharge the batteries because they were so thrilled to have a real Englishman that they could practice on, especially the BBC. <laughs> Yingguo Guangbo Dentai, the English, the British, Eng, the English Broadcasting Corporation, as they, <laughs> as the Chinese called it. So those were very interesting times up to 87. And there was a sense of reform and push and pull. And, and I went back with, I went back to Beijing for the first time after leaving in November 1987 to cover the Gorbachev visit, the great thaw between the Soviet Union and communist China hmm. uh, in May 1989. And that, of course, turned into Tiananmen Square. And boy, was that a story. Blimey, was that a story. And I, true to form, left town before it really hit the fan. And the most traumatic experience of my entire journalistic ex- life was being on the North Norfolk coast, hearing about the tanks going onto Tiananmen Square in the evening of Saturday, June the 3rd, 1989, etched on my consciousness. My goodness me. My wife, then still Yutta, now again Yutta, um, after a 13-year break, uh, said I literally went green because I wasn't there. No, I can imagine. I mean, if if you're a journalist, to know that you've missed out on a story like that by a matter of days, yeah, must because stories like that don't, you know, that's a one in a lifetime story, isn't it? Yeah, it's like not being around for the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, guess where I wasn't when the wall came down. <laughs> I guess where I wasn't when the Velvet Rev- Revolution happened. And guess who was the very first person to say, please, me, 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 when the report came in in December 1989 from Revolution Square in Bucharest that the crowds had started chanting, Jos, jos Komunismul, Jos Ceausescu, down with Ceausescu, down with communism. Let me tell you that story, Ian. That's a good one. Go on. We, we've been, um, yeah, teeing that up for, well, quite some time now. Um, so tell me about Romania in 1989. Cheap trick, I know, but uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave you on a cliffhanger there. You'll hear more in episode three. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group, where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.